Well, today we conclude our mini-series in the Old Testament story of Jonah. I find it interesting that many people outside the church have heard of this man, Jonah, and if they're familiar with anything, what are they thinking of? They're thinking of this area in the story where he's swallowed by a great fish, right? But I hope we've come to understand that the story of Jonah is much more than a guy getting swallowed by a great fish. In fact, this is not primarily a story about Jonah. This is primarily a story about God and how God wants to change our hearts and lives so that we become a people of grace and we care more deeply than ever before about lost people. Every incident in this book drives home this point about God's grace. We first of all see grace in the restoration of this prophet Jonah. You recall how in the opening verse he's given this mission from God. This is what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach. And of course, we know he did just the opposite. He took off in the opposite direction. And uh, as a result of all of that, God wants to restore his broken, disobedient prophet. And so he creates at sea this great storm, intensifies the storm, so that the sailors on board the ship throw Jonah overboard, and he's rescued from drowning by this great fish and deposited on dry land. And then comes this uh, desire on the part of Jonah to finally heed the message that God had given to him to go to this great city of Nineveh. So we see God's grace in the restoration of this prophet. But we also see the theme of grace in the lives of these sailors who were manning the ship that was taking Jonah far away to a place called Tarshish, most likely located in southern Spain. And in the midst of this raging storm, these sailors are doing what you would expect pagan sailors to do. Each is crying out to his own God, it says. But as a result of the witness of this prophet Jonah and observing how the sea became calm when they threw Jonah overboard, it says that they turned to the Lord and later they even offered sacrifices of worship and praise. And so we see the theme of grace going out to these sailors because lost people, pagan people, people far from God, matter to God. But we not only see the theme of grace going out to Jonah and these sailors, we also see it going out to the people of Nineveh. So as a result of the preaching of Jonah in this wicked city, there's this significant revival, and it says in chapter three, verse five, the Ninevites believed God, they declared a fast, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth as a sign of their repentance, their sorrow for their disobedience. So we see grace going out to Jonah, grace going out to the people of Nineveh, grace going out to these sailors. Wouldn't you think, as a result of the turning of these people in the city of Nineveh toward the Lord, that Jonah now would be filled with joy and celebration. Well, this is what we read in chapter four and verse one. Literally, it says this, but all this was grievous to Jonah, a great evil, and he was angry. 
So what is great to God, grace going out to these people, is great evil to Jonah, and he is ticked. Now, we may have thought at the very beginning of this story, learning a little bit about this wicked city, how it's known for its atrocities and warfare and its idolatry and such, very dark place. We would think that God's great concern is going to be, what in the world is he going to do with the people of Nineveh? But as we get further into this story, we realize that's not God's big concern. God's greater concern is, what am I going to do about this self-righteous, racist, nationalistic, self-absorbed, superior prophet, and what am I going to do to people who are like him? That's God's big concern. So God wants to transform the heart of any Jonah. He wants to transform this church. And he wants to transform me, and he wants to transform you. So how's he going to go about doing that? Well, if you look at your sermon notes on the front, under theme... It's going to tell us, by means of three searching concerns and questions, the God of grace calls us to be a people of grace. So the method that God wants to employ to transform us is to ask us three questions. And we discover that each question draws attention to a concern in our lives that needs to change if people are going to matter to us as much as they matter to God. So what are the three questions? And what are those areas that need to be changed? Well, first of all, we discover that we need a change in our thinking. Change in our thinking. God asked this question, verse 4, have you any right to be angry? Now, with this question, Jonah's being asked to judge whether he's right in his thinking about lost people or if the God of the universe is right. It's as if God is saying, Jonah, we're looking at the exact same situation from two very different perspectives. Jonah, I'm pleased with the repentance of these people and you're angry. Which of us has the right perspective? Well, of course, there's no way that Jonah is going to win an argument with the God of the universe. But that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We need to consider that which prompts God to ask this question in the first place. So let me read for you the opening verses of this fourth chapter. So here's how the story unfolds in this passage. But Jonah, so here's the repentance of the city. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? He means back in Israel. That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I just knew that about you. Now, oh, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, and here's our question, have you any right to be angry. Now, in Jonah's anger at God, we notice several things. To begin with, this prophet seems to be attempting to justify himself for his earlier disobedience. It's as if he's saying, this is the reason why I didn't want to go in the first place. I know that you're a compassionate God. You wanted to send me to proclaim a message of judgment, but I know what you're like. And I'm aware of the fact you're probably going to cause these people to repent and then you're going to relent 
and extend grace to them instead of judgment. I just know that about you. So here's my question. Do we ever try to justify our silence in the face of the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us? Well, yeah, I'm afraid if we're honest with ourselves, I would have to admit it and no doubt you would need to do the same thing. We do hold back in the face of opportunities, don't we? So how do we attempt to justify our silence? So I want you to notice this chart and it kind of summarizes some of the main ways in which I think we hold back. So notice, first of all, on the left, the fear column. Oftentimes we hold back because we're fearful of what to say or people's questions. We're afraid of failure or the unknown, rejection. Maybe it's a matter of peer pressure. So we just long for approval and acceptance. Or look at the middle column, the sense of inadequacy regarding time issues or faith, not believing it's gonna do any good, knowledge of the Bible or a lack of love because of our complacency. Or could it be that our concerns fall into the other column of misunderstandings regarding evangelism? Whose job is it anyway? Or of the message, maybe we have doubts about some things. Or as society, do people really even need Jesus? Or methodology, how do we go about doing it? So a number of our reasons could be dealt with, I think, if we were willing to do some self-study. Or how about going to a mature Christian friend who's part of our growth group or a Sunday morning community and saying, how do you deal with this? Here's the mission that Jesus has given to us. How do you seek to honor Christ with respect to that mission? So sometimes, like Jonah, yeah, we try to justify our silence. But let's go a little bit deeper. Because I think Jonah is also trying to turn God against God. Let me explain what I mean by that. He's actually, well, he seems to be at least quoting a passage of scripture to turn God's word against God. He seems to be quoting from Exodus chapter 34. Look at these verses with me. The Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. It's as if Jonah is saying, Lord, is this not what you say in your word that you are like? Yes, okay. Then in sending me to the city of Nineveh, you had no intention of fulfilling this word of judgment, did you? So I, Jonah, I'm the consistent one here, and you, God, you're two-faced, and you're the one who's in the wrong. That seems to be his argument. So it's the danger of attempting to use the Bible to justify disobedience. And in this case, a lack of concern for other people. Now, do we do that? Well, I'm afraid at times we do. For example, some of us may attempt to excuse our lack of interest in sharing Christ with other people by pointing to Bible verses that emphasize the fact that people are given different spiritual gifts. And that, of course, is true. One of those gifts is the gift of evangelism. And we try to justify then our silence by saying, well, that's not my gift. 
Let those with a gift engage in evangelism. Let those who have gone to seminary, you know, pastors, trained, let them engage in this kind of task. This is not for me. Well, frankly, evangelism isn't my gift either. But one thing that we're all given, in spite of our gifts or in the, to empower our gifts, is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So at Acts 1-8, Jesus can say, doesn't matter what your gift is, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you to one end, so that you can be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So sometimes we try to justify our silence by claiming it's not my gift. At other times we might try to justify our silence by a wrong view of God. And what I mean by that is this, that some argue that God would never send people to hell if they never even heard about Jesus. So let's not tell them. Because if we tell them and they reject Jesus, now they're gonna be in trouble. So let's just be silent about it all. Well, friends, we need to realize whenever we're attempting to do things to justify silence along these lines, we're just like this prophet Jonah. So at this point, maybe we feel like asking the question, what's really wrong with this guy anyway? What's really his problem? Well, I think for starters, Jonah had a flawed understanding of the character of God and his grace. He needs to be set right in his thinking. So yes, he knows that the Lord is compassionate and gracious and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but you see, that grace is only for people like himself, not for people that are, you know, different. But certainly, God doesn't look down and evaluate us on the basis of human approval. He doesn't say, oh, I see you're smart, you have a great GPA, or look, you're so good looking or attractive and you wear designer clothing, or you work here or drive this kind of car on the basis of that, I'm gonna extend mercy to you. No, God is aware that we're broken. That's how we come to him in a state of brokenness and in need of his grace of forgiveness. But in addition to having a flawed understanding of the character of God and his grace, Frankly, Jonah doesn't know God nearly as well as he think, thinks he does. Not once in the story do we read about Jonah repenting or confessing his disobedience to God. Not once. Instead, he praises God for rescuing him from drowning, but he never gets around to expressing his concern for his previous disobedience. By contrast, the Bible makes it abundantly clear the closer we get to God, the more aware we are of our pride, our self-absorption, our indifference toward the things that he asks us to do, and at the same time, we become more aware of his love and his compassion and his grace. So consequently, we'll be so thankful for his grace, we'll be motivated to extend it to others. Well, now that we have an idea of what led up to the question, let's briefly come back to it. Jonah, do you have any right to be angry? Maybe we need to slightly modify the question because I don't think our issue is so much anger. So I think maybe God would want to say to us, the city church, church, do you have any right to be insensitive? Church, do you have any right to be proud or indifferent or apathetic when it comes to the mission I've given you of telling others about me. If you know 
that I'm compassionate and gracious, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness and such, it has got to impact my life and yours. And it'll lead to the three kinds of things we've talked about in previous weeks. One is we begin to notice people. You know, you notice the person who pours out your coffee at your favorite coffee shop. You begin to notice that nerdy character who sits next to you in third period math. You notice that individual who works near you in the cubicle, whatever, your neighbor. You begin to notice people and you begin secondly to pray for them by name. Lord, I lift up Jennifer this morning who poured out my coffee today or whoever that individual is. You would pray for that individual that God would bless that individual and come to an awareness of his grace. And we become more open to the promptings of God's Holy Spirit to tell them about the one who can change them forever, even Jesus. What do we need? We need a change in our thinking. But in addition to that, second concern and question is this, we need a change in attitude. Change in attitude. So now God asks the question, verse nine, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? Now what leads up to this question? Well, let me read it for you in verses five to nine. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord, remember, God has already extended mercy to these people, but he still wants to know what's going on with the city. What's going to happen? Then the Lord God provided the first of three things that we read about here. First, he provides a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided something else, a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided something else, a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But Jonah, but God said to Jonah, and here's our second question, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said, I'm angry enough to die. Doesn't it seem to you like this guy is like a three-year-old who's throwing a tantrum at the local supermarket or something? I mean, that's the way this comes across to me. Now, we need to understand, though, that there's something a lot more significant going on here than Jonah being spared a little sunburn. What these verses reveal is if we're going to care about people the way God does, we need an attitude adjustment, an attitude change. Let me explain. Often the prophets were called of God to deliver their message by means of drama, acting it out. So for example, on one occasion, he had a prophet named Hosea marry a prostitute in order to illustrate for the entire nation that they were guilty of infidelity, spiritually speaking. On another occasion, he has a prophet by the name of Ezekiel laying aside for like 390 days as a way of illustrating judgment is coming. But it's interesting, in all of these other occasions where this occurs, always the prophet is the actor and the audience is the nation of Israel. All but this one time. Here, it's as if God is the actor, God sends a, a vine, God sends 
a worm. God sends the scorching east wind. So God is the actor, Jonah's the audience. And what's happening here is that God wants to transform not just the people of Nineveh, he wants to transform Jonah. So how is he going to go about doing it? Well, it begins by the provision of this plant. So Jonah is angry, angry because of the repentance of the people. There's a lack of judgment upon these wicked people who are his enemies. And Jonah's ticked because now something has happened to his precious vine that has provided him with shade. Now, this is full of meaning for any Israelite who would be reading this. For Israel, a desert people, shade is a sign of God's blessing. It's a sign of God's grace, his protection and his care upon his people. And so frequently in the Old Testament, we're reading statements just to give you one example. Isaiah 25 says the following. You, God, have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. So shade means to be under the protection and the care of God. Protection from what? Protection from one's enemies. So in fact, the, the phrase that says that the plant was to ease this man's discomfort in the Hebrew literally says this, to deliver him from evil. So out there we have the enemy, these Ninevites, these no goody wicked people who aren't like us. So that's why Jonah is very happy about the plant because to Jonah, it's not just physical protection going on here. To Jonah, when the plant goes up, it means that Nineveh might be going down after all. So he's on the blessing side of God. He wants to sit around and see what is going to happen to this wicked city. And so he rejoices in the vine, it says, with great joy. Rejoicing in the potential destruction of these people after all. So what does all of this say to you and to me? Well, I think it's somewhat ironic that while God continues to extend grace to Jonah, even the provision of this shade, Jonah remains judgmental. Jonah is still unloving and critical toward people who are different. George Barna has spent many, many years doing a lot of research about matters of faith. And over the last few years, on several occasions, he has conducted surveys to find out what people outside the church think of those of us who are inside the church. And wouldn't you note it, survey after survey reveals people outside the church regard us as superior, judgmental, intolerant, unloving. Those are our attitudes, just like Jonah. Now maybe they're all wrong. Or maybe I have some of the spirit of Jonah in me and you have the same in you. I mean, it's interesting to me that about a year or so ago, we had this assessment done of our church and among other things it revealed we're really low when it comes to this whole matter of sharing Christ with lost people. So maybe there's some of that in me and in you and in the life of this church. I mean, how many times do I tend to forget this key phrase that we've been coming back to throughout this series, lost people matter to God. What people? Well, all kinds of people. The, you know, the, the person who cleans up your table at your favorite restaurant, 
the nerdy guy who sits next to you in class, or educated people, uneducated, depressed people, happy people, married people, divorced people, single people, Muslims, atheists, LGBTQ type people, all kinds of people matter to God. And when one of them is separated from him, it breaks God's heart. So what does he do? Theologians like to talk about what they call the covenant of redemption. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means as a word that back in eternity, before there was even the creation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit planned to execute redemption for broken, lost people. And it's as if the Father said, one must go who is perfect into this broken world to die on behalf of these broken, sinful people. And Jesus said, I will go. And the Holy Spirit said, I will apply salvation to those whom you purchase. And so what happens? Well, the son goes into the world, dies our death, is placed in a tomb, and on the third day, the God who spoke to a fish to exit this man, Jonah, spoke to a stone and it rolled away and Jesus rose again, began a new community called the church. And he made up the church to have a mission to go and proclaim his message to other people who are also broken. So God asked Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? He thinks he does. But of course he doesn't, just as we have no right to be insensitive or cold or indifferent toward those who are far from God. So what do we need? We not only need a change in thinking, we need a change in our attitude. All right, there's a third question, and it introduces the fact that we need a change in what we care about. So God now asks this question in verse 11, should I not be concerned about that great city? So now we come to the climax of the entire story. This is how it ends. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this fine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. That's an idiom meaning they're spiritually unaware. Probably refers to the whole population, generally speaking, being that way, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Now, what is God doing here? Well, he's giving Jonah a final lesson on grace. Jonah, let's talk about the plant. What's your relationship to the plant, Jonah? Did you create it? Uh, no. Did you take care of it and cause it to grow? Did you sustain its life by giving it fertilizer, causing the sun to shine upon it? Uh, no. Jonah, what about the duration of your plant? Oh, it sprang up overnight and died overnight, so it's temporary, right? Jonah, I'm not gonna argue with you. You think you have a right to have affection for a plant you did not create, you did not sustain, and is here today and gone tomorrow. But Jonah, give me my right to care for these people of Nineveh that I created, I sustain, 
and which is filled with immortal, never-dying souls. Jonah, let's talk about the cows. Oh, we have to talk about the cows. Yeah, let's talk about the cows, Jonah. Jonah, compared to many cows, your little plant would hardly be of significance by any method of reasoning. But Jonah, we're not talking about cows. We're talking about people. So that's the argument. Now, when we've read this story, we want to find out, did Jonah get it? I mean, was there brokenness on his part? Did, did he repent? Did he get a tender heart for the things of God and for lost people? Or did Jonah just hold on to his self-righteousness and his pride? We never find out. I mean, the story just ends with Jonah just kind of sitting there. I mean, doesn't that drive you crazy? What a lousy way to end a story. Why would a writer end a story without resolution? It's like watching your favorite movie on Netflix, you know, and you're waiting for the big conclusion. Is, this, is there going to be justice, or is this person going to be spared? And you never find out. The movie just ends. That's what's going on here. Because the point of the story is not that Jonah was the only one with a decision to make. The point of the story is that you and I have a decision to make. It's our story. So we've spent four weeks looking at the story, and in essence, it ends by saying, what are you going to do about it, church? How are you going to respond? Because it's, this is your story, City Church. What are you going to do about it? I think we need to do two things. I think, first of all, we need to spend some time in reflection in order to let God speak to our hearts about his passion for people, a passion that he wants me to have and you to have and our church to have. He wants us to notice the people that are in our worlds, the person at the grocery store, the person in the soup, you know, in the, in the lunch line, the person at school, work, wherever. He wants us to notice people and he wants us to be offering prayer for people that they would come to know him, and he wants us to be open to the promptings of his spirit. That's all. Not do weird things that are contrary to your personality. Just be open. And then I think we need to turn to the one who's far greater than Jonah, who spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth for, for me and you and our sin, and that, of course, is Jesus. So having reflected on the things that God is calling us to do, we remember Christ entering our broken world, dying our death, being raised from the dead and giving us a mission. So I'm going to invite us to do two things as we close this series this morning. First of all, to spend some time in quiet prayer before the Lord, just asking him, what is it you're trying to say to me, Lord? And then Devin is going to come and lead us in the second action. So let's begin the first of these two actions by turning to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together and I'll close the prayer time. Well, how much of the Jonah spirit is in you? What needs to change? What action step is God prompting you to take?
Father, hear our prayers of confession and forgive us for those times when we've been a whole lot like Jonah, cold, judgmental, and different toward extending grace to people who are far from you. May we communicate grace to them instead of the indifference and the pride of a Jonah. And may we learn the lesson of this book that lost people matter to you. That they need to matter to us. So help us, Father, to so love you and others that with sensitivity and, and love we begin this week, this week, to find all kinds of ways to commend you to others. For the sake of our Savior, we pray. Amen.